So, do we have any fans of Caitlin Clark in the house tonight? Yes. Sure. Hey, we actually, you do know who that is. For those who don't, uh, Caitlin Clark is a really big deal right now in women's college basketball. She's breaking all kinds of records all over the place, and not just women's records. She's breaking NCAA D1 basketball record. She is so incredibly fun to watch. It's like watching a young Steph Curry just taking these crazy shots she can't possibly make. And then also, like, getting assists like crazy. I mean, some of the words she's getting, I mean, she's just an all-around player. And I want to point out, by the way, that my wife is actually from Iowa, okay? And she, multi-generational fan of the Iowa Hawkeyes. Her cousin played for the Hawkeyes. So we are not just riding the bandwagon right now. Or more accurately, she's not riding the bandwagon. I'm totally riding the bandwagon. My daughter Ellie, who's 11, is a basketball player. She just loves to watch Clark. They videotape all the games. She and Kara and Kara's parents, who also are huge fans, have tickets to attend the upcoming Iowa State or Iowa Hawkeye Minnesota Gopher women's basketball game, which apparently are very hard tickets to get. Notice that I wasn't invited. Apparently this is like a real fans only event and I didn't make the cut and that's okay. <laughs> Ellie also loves playing basketball and, and frankly she's good. I mean, I know Probably all parents are going to say that, but she's a good player, and her team is just absolutely great. And, and I don't mean necessarily their record. They've got a good record. They're, they're great friends. They're, they're great people. They're, they're great parents. Like, it's really, really fun. They do sleepovers, and, and they just do life. It's, it's great friendships that she's building. In fact, last year, their season had such a good winter season that they decided to, all of them, the whole team and the coaches, sign up for a spring league. And that one said, well, they decided to sign up for a summer league. So it's like all basketball all the time. Except it isn't, right? Because it's not just basketball. Because on top of basketball, Ellie was simultaneously in two different dance companies with multiple practices per week. She was involved in church and school and so many sleepovers and so many birthday parties and so much stuff. And you know who drove her to all of that, of course? Kara and I did. And that that was just one kid. We have three with three different areas of passions and pursuits and interests and all these different things. And on top of that, Karen and I both have jobs. We're like adults who have responsibilities and lives, not social lives, but lives. It means that seven days a week, often from dawn until dusk, we're busy. We're doing stuff. We're moving. We've got things to do and places to be. I wonder whoever has time to do laundry in our house. Now, let me be clear. These are all good things. I'm not complaining. These aren't hardships. We chose this. We we made this. We created this. What I'm saying is that even too much of a good thing is still too much. You may remember a couple of weeks ago that Pastor Chris said that in the ancient Near Eastern world, there, there was no system of days and weeks and cataloging. It was just one day after the next day after the next day, right? Every day was another day. In Egypt, when God's people were enslaved, there was no weekend. Every day was just another day of labor, of, of slaving. Well, good news, friends. It's taken us a while to get there, but I think we've successfully recreated that same ancient model in our culture today. Success! <laughs> For many, the culture around us looks like that, working so hard. And you have to work hard. If you want to be great like Caitlin Clark, you have to work hard. She didn't get to where she's at by not shooting baskets. What does that mean for us? Fortunately, Scripture has a lot, and I mean a lot, to say on this subject. Today we're continuing our series, Sabbath, looking at this biblical model of rhythms that are meant to shape our lives and asking how should, how could Sabbath impact our lives today? And how on earth would we even do Sabbath in our culture? So far we've looked at the Old Testament. Sabbath and rest and dwelling with God and with others in peace is literally central to the very beginning story, the creation story in Genesis. 
God very intentionally gives us a model of work and rest in relationship with him, in relationship with one another, in relationship with nature, trusting that the God who created, the God who's provided, will continue to provide everything that they needed. And the same God then says, that rhythm, that Sabbath day is holy. That demonstration of trust and covenant between me and you is holy. Keep doing that. Keep that holy. Sabbath, as we learned last week, then it is central to so much of the rest of the Old Testament. Sabbath and God's provision were central to the Exodus story as God brought the people out of slavery into, out of Egypt and provided manna for them. Sabbath was such a big deal that we learned that it was one of the Ten Commandments. God commanded them to keep the Sabbath holy. I made it holy, God said. You keep it holy. Sabbath was such a big deal that the penalty for not keeping Sabbath was death. Think about that. Chris said last week that God created Sabbath and commanded Sabbath in part to demonstrate that he was different than any other kind of God. He was different than any other kind of king. He wasn't like the other ancient Near Eastern kings. He wasn't like Pharaoh or any other regional king. It's a theme you see throughout the whole Old Testament. But there's another theme you see throughout the Old Testament as well. From the start, humans fail to do it. For instance, God says, I'll send you manna for six days, but not on the seventh day, so you can rest on that day. So get it while the getting's good. Really clear, right? And yet on the seventh day, you see a bunch of these people like out there looking for them. Like, hey, what gives, God? Like, where's the manna? What gives? Or some people worried that they wouldn't be enough, started trying to stockpile and store it up, build a kind of a safety net of manna, and they woke up to find it rotten and full of worms. God had promised to give them their daily bread. Sound familiar? And trust that if he did it one day, he would be good for it the next. Trust, faith. There was a whole system. And the people by and large didn't do it. And then that theme carries out across thousands of years of Old Testament history. Virtually all of the prophets end up chastising the people for not observing Sabbath, not keeping it holy. God's judgment and wrath over his people failing to obey this command that would have been so good for them. Chris in week one said this, there are things that we're obligated to do that we benefit from. Yeah, Sabbath was a really, really big deal in the Old Testament. But we ask the question, is it today? Should it be today? I mean, like Chris said, it's one of the Ten Commandments. God's ten top ten list of thou shalt and thou shalt not. And yet for most of us, if we're honest, we, we've essentially dismissed it from our tradition, from our lives, from our patterns. It was a big deal in the Old Testament, but I think we have to ask, was it a big deal to Jesus? The narrative that I've never actually heard overtly preached, but I think often implied, is that like angry Old Testament God said Sabbath, and grace hippie Jesus came and kind of like dismissed it and broke the Sabbath a bunch of times anyway. I've never heard it preached, but that's kind of the message you pick up. But where do you find that in Scripture? As Chris asked, which, which of the other top ten lists can we just ignore because hippie Jesus released us? I think perhaps a better question is this. If God said, keep the Sabbath holy, and then said that that was a forever command, which he did multiple times, I think a better question would be, what did it look like for Jesus to keep Sabbath holy? There's a place to write that in your notes. What did Jesus teach? How did Jesus treat the Sabbath? How did Jesus model for us how we can keep the Sabbath holy? And that, friends, is where I want to spend the bulk of our time today. 
As Chris pointed out, the 400 years before Jesus entered this story, Scripture is absolutely silent about Sabbath because it's silent about everything. And yet during that time, apparently they were still gathering, they were still debating, they were still talking. They were still talking about Sabbath. There were all these different ideas that had come off, different opinions and divisions, and every group had their own list of rules and regulations so that if someone misstepped, even in the smallest way, the religious leaders could throw the book at them. Sabbath, this beautiful gift, had been reduced to a bunch of regulations. It had been reduced to sort of a gotcha system. I gotcha. You broke title, blah, 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 gotcha. To be clear, they were trying, if imperfectly, to get this right, to keep it holy. But I think it's a gift to us that Jesus chooses, chooses to enter into the story at that time and in that place of confusion and division and strong opinions and outright dismissal. And he speaks into it and lives into it. I said Sabbath is all over the Old Testament. But if you read the story, Sabbath is all over the Jesus stories in the gospel too. So many of Jesus' story happen on or around Sabbath. In fact, one of the primary tools that his enemies, the religious leaders, use to try to trap him is around how he addresses and acts on the Sabbath. From the very start of his ministry, Jesus observes and teaches Sabbath. There's a place to write this down. Jesus observed Sabbath. I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, I invite you to go to Bible.com or BibleGateway.com. They both have great resources that we use regularly. Luke chapter 4 is, is often referred to as sort of Jesus' inaugural address. It's him beginning his ministry on earth. right? He's, he's up until this point been relatively uh, remote. So Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. It says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Note that it says, Jesus regularly went to the synagogue and observed Sabbath and taught scripture. It says, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath. The author doesn't want us to miss the fact that this was a usual, normal, regular, rhythmic pattern, a pattern in Jesus' life. A pattern of observing Sabbath with others. Next verse. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, that the time of the Lord's favor has come. This is a passage that would have been familiar to many of the people in the room. You, you may remember last week that Chris talked about Sabbath being more than just a day off once a week. It was part of a much larger cycle of patterns, right? It, it was a weekly rhythm of Sabbath day every seven days, but also a rhythm of Sabbath year every seven years where the land was allowed to rest, which is kind of radical. This is an agrarian society. If you don't farm, you don't eat. And yet they were commanded to let the fields go fallow. And then every cycle of seven years times seven or 49 years, there was a far more radical one where all the slaves and the bonded laborers were set free. All the land that had been mortgaged was given back to the original owners. Debts were forgiven and prisoners were set free. It was like a super Sabbath called the year of Jubilee, the time of the Lord's favor as Jesus refers to it here. 
Jesus is reading from, preaching from Isaiah 61, talking about this year of Jubilee, the super Sabbath, right? Except he's doing more than that, actually. Jesus, again, utilizes a technique we've talked about before, a rabbinic technique that has become known, has become known as remez. Where a rabbi, when he's teaching from one passage, will quote a part of another passage to tie the two passages, the two concepts together. One commentator referred to this as sort of like ancient hyperlinking. By doing this, you link one passage to the other passage. So Jesus' Jewish audience would have been very familiar with Isaiah 61. Heard it their entire lives. And so they would have recognized immediately that the phrase in verse 18, that the oppressed will be set free, isn't in Isaiah 61. Jesus inserts that phrase as a reference to a hyperlink to Isaiah 58, a chapter where the prophet Isaiah is proclaiming judgment on Israel for not keeping the Sabbath holy, by not caring for the oppressed and making it about themselves. Instead, God says that keeping the Sabbath holy looks like this. Free those who are properly, wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free. There it is. And remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them. And do not hide from relatives who need your help. So apparently, part of keeping the Sabbath holy is active. It involves doing good for others. That is the context that Jesus hyperlinks to. ties this concept, this passage too. See, Jesus did more than observe Sabbath. There's a place to write this down. Jesus taught Sabbath. To a people that thought they knew everything there was to know about Sabbath, they'd created these systems. He's teaching them a new way. Let's go back to Luke and to Jesus' teachings. Jesus reads these passages of Scripture, declares the year of favor, and then it says this. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture that you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. He says, it's been fulfilled. He says, and I'm that fulfillment. I am that day of rest. I am that year of rest. I am the fulfillment of Jubilee, the super Sabbath. Tim from the Bible Project podcast, which is awesome. It's on our site slash resources. Check it out. It's a great 12-part podcast. He says this. In this passage, it's the past or perfect tense has been fulfilled. That means it's a past event with ongoing implications and present implications. <laughs> Dude, this is a mic drop moment. This is Jesus going, this is who I am. Boom. Right? Jesus is the ultimate jubilee. There's a phrase, there's a place to write this in your notes as well. Jesus fulfilled Sabbath. So, Does that mean that Sabbath is fulfilled and therefore we don't need to observe it anymore? Not at all. Just as Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law to to fulfill it. I think here Jesus is saying something similar. I didn't come to abolish Sabbath, but to fulfill it. And as we'll see, he affirms, he even expands their understanding of what it means to live Sabbathly. After this address, it was Jesus reminds them that the holy day of Sabbath looks like in God's eyes. After making the claim that he is the fulfillment of Sabbath, the next several stories in Luke are all of Jesus going out, actively living that Sabbath, that jubilee out, actively doing good on the Sabbath. I would argue that Jesus models Sabbath, teaches Sabbath, but there's a place to write this down. He also embodied Sabbath. He put flesh and bones on a Sabbath. Sabbath is more than a day, although it's that. It's more than a weekly cycle or a seven-year cycle, although it certainly is that. It's more than a 49-year cycle, although it is that. 
It's a whole way of living that understands who we are, who God is, and then acts and lives with that understanding as the primary central driving force to every decision that we make. And Jesus embodies what it means to live Sabbathly. That is not a word. Don't look it up. <laughs> I made that word up. Let's continue. Let's see what I mean. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Luke 5 continues with Jesus choosing his first disciple and building his community of people and they begin to immediately go out and acting out this Sabbath, this jubilee together. In one village, for instance, they come upon a man who, who is leprosy and Jesus immediately breaks customary religious sensibilities by touching the man, thereby making himself unclean. But he touches the man and heals the man. And now even Jesus then tells the guy not to tell anyone, word somehow gets out. And the story ends like this. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Jesus does this restorative work of jubilee, freeing this man from the oppression of his disease, and he does it in a manner that flies in the face of the religious leaders and their sensibilities by touching a leper. And then he gets mobbed by people who want healing. But how does the story end? But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Now Luke doesn't overtly call this a passage on Sabbath, right? But isn't that the Sabbath cycle? Jesus does good work with God for others and then withdraws for rest and time with the Father. That is the Sabbath cycle, the cycle of work and rest. Next verse, next passage. One day Jesus, while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law were sitting nearby. I love this. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all of Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Yeah, they're showing up. They're coming out of the woodwork to see Jesus, but it might not be because they're fans, right? We'll, we'll see. And in front of them, these people who are coming to try to trap him, Jesus models Sabbath cycle. He's teaching, and while he is, he's just surrounded by people. And some men bring a friend who's been paralyzed, and they want Jesus to heal him. But they can't get to Jesus because Jesus is mobbed by these people listening to him teach. So the guys climb on the roof. It's a familiar story. And they remove ceiling tiles, right, which is vandalism. <laughs> and they lower the friend down to Jesus. And Jesus, seeing that, says this. Uh, let's see if I can find where that goes. Looks up and says this. Here we go. Next page. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. Kind of a strange response. Jesus forgives his sins. He didn't ask for that. His friends didn't ask for that. But the religious leaders, of course, are offended. You know, they say, well, nobody but God can do that. He can't forgive sins. And Jesus says, okay, well, which is easier? Making a statement that only God can make or doing a miracle that only God could do? So he heals the guy. Mic drop. Again, there's so many mic drops in these stories. Just boom. Mic after mic. In the next section, Jesus is at a feast, resting and enjoying fellowship at his new disciple Levi's house, who happens to be, you know, a Roman collaborating, own people betraying scumbag tax collector. But he invited Jesus over. He's one of Jesus' disciples. And at the house, there's all kinds of Levi's who will become Matthew. All of his friends are there who also happen to be people of very low character. And they're feasting and they're fasting and they're lounging. And again, the religious leaders are offended. Why are, you, why are you hanging out with these sinners? And, and it's a familiar story. Jesus says, a doctor didn't, doesn't come to heal the well. He comes to heal the sick, right? Your religious leaders have built all these rules to determine who's righteous and who's not, but you've missed the point. 
It's these people who need to be released from the oppression of their sin and greed and corruption. But you instead, you know, instead you're figuring out how many bricks can be put together on the Sabbath before someone's breaking the rules of no building on the Sabbath. You're missing the point. I know what these people need to be oppressed, freed from. I think he's asking the leaders, what, what, what do you need to be freed from? Maybe it's your laws. Maybe it's your rules that are oppressing you. Again, Luke doesn't call it Sabbath, but it's that same pattern, that same cycle. Jesus does good work of healing and then rests in feast with God and with others. He's modeling it in his context of what it means to live Sabbathly. And in the very next verse, Jesus' question about fasting, another central tenet of Jewish piety. They say, John the Baptist's disciples are always fasting and praying, and your disciples are always feasting and partying. <laughs> what You're doing fasting wrong. <laughs> you're doing righteous wrong. And Jesus responds with this verse. Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. I think Jesus is saying this is in part a return to the garden. This is in part a return to Eden, to, to the seventh day of rest, of fellowship, of dwelling together in peace, of the creator new walking, as Chris said last week, with his created. It's only a glimpse, but it's a glimpse. It's a picture of Sabbath. Now, I acknowledge that those are, all those stories are not about the Sabbath fundamentally, but it's about this pattern of Jesus' life. He's living this pattern every day of the week. Next verse, chapter 6. One Sabbath day, as Jesus is walking through the grain fields, his disciples broke off, broke off heads of grain, rubbed off the husks in their hands, and ate the grain. But some Pharisees said, why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? So a couple of things there. <laughs> the author, again, wants us to know that this is the Sabbath. Jesus is doing this on the Sabbath. So many of these stories of Jesus getting into trouble happen on the Sabbath. It can't be a coincidence. In response to COVID, I've heard from so many people that after the disruption of our regular rhythms, after the disruption of knowing what day it was, it's still difficult for some people to figure out what day it is. There are people who are retired. They often talk about like, what day, what day is it today? Was this Jesus being confused about what day of the week it was and accidentally breaking the law? I, I don't think so. As you've seen throughout all of these Luke stories, Jesus is intentionally choosing to do what he does, when he does it, where he does it to model and to teach, to push back. And in this case, it's overtly about Sabbath. So how does Jesus respond to this accusation? Jesus replied, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? They went into the house of God and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Okay, so quick context for those of you who don't know what the story is. Jesus' listeners would have, obviously. But in the book of Exodus... God demands, commands that they build a tabernacle, place of worship, house of the Lord. And in the tabernacle, there's a table. The table's made of bokachi wood, and it's covered in gold. It's a really special table. And on the table, there's 12 loaves. And the 12 loaves of bread represent all kinds of things. The 12 tribes of Israel, God's provision of manna in the wilderness. It represents a, a, like a meal with God. In the ancient world, eating with someone was a covenant. It was really, really significant. And so each week, the priest would bring out these new loaves on a weekly returning, reaffirmed, reunited reminder of God's faithfulness that was weekly reaffirmed. And nobody was supposed to touch the bread or eat the bread except for the priests. But David and his men were in the fight of their lives trying to escape King Saul, who at the time was king, and his army was chasing David down, trying to kill David. And David and his men were truly foraging. They were living in caves. They were living off the land. They were starving. They got hungry and they ate some forbidden bread. 
And I think Jesus is saying in part, this, what my disciples are doing, this isn't that. Okay? While Jesus' disciples walking through a field and idly grabbing some grains might have been an affront to their religious sensibilities, the disciples weren't breaking the law. What David had done clearly was breaking the law. Jesus even says that. Again, I love what the Bible Project says. Jesus is quoting a story from when David was fleeing King Saul, who Israel thought was still their king, but in God's eyes, he was an illegitimate king. David, the real king, and he kept, but he kept undercover until God exalted him. Jesus is putting himself in the place of Israel's true but unrecognized king. And then he puts himself in the place of going into the temple and just acting like he's a priest. Jesus as the rightful king. Jesus as the true priest. Jesus is appealing to this well-known biblical precedent while also continuing to build a case for who he is without allowing himself to be kind of drawn into their doctrinal turf wars. It's even more explicit when you read the same account of the story in the book of Matthew. Jesus says all those same things, but then he goes even further. Chapter 12, verse 5 says this. And haven't you read the law of Moses? That the priest on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath. I tell you, there's one here who's even greater than the temple. I sense another mic drop coming. Jesus is saying, I'm greater than the bread. I'm greater than the priests. I'm greater than the temple. And then Jesus quotes the Old Testament book of Hosea to prove that while the Pharisees were nitpicking about how many grains were too many grains, they missed the whole point. Jesus says this, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. It's the same sentiment that Chris referred to last week in Amos. It's so many of the prophet's words. I want you to show mercy. I want you to free the oppressed. Then Jesus does drop the mic. He says, for the Son of Man is the Lord even over the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, I created Sabbath. I commanded Sabbath. I was Lord of the Sabbath, and I still am Lord of the Sabbath. Mic drop. It's a big claim. And that same story appears in Mark chapter 2. There's something that only appears in Mark's account. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. In Mark, before Jesus even claims to be Lord, he clarifies who the Sabbath was created for. Us. For humanity. All three gospel accounts then go on to tell another story from that same Sabbath day. Let's go back to the book of Matthew 12, chapter 12. Then Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. The Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? This is important. They were hoping he would say yes so they could bring charges against him. In the Mark telling of the same story, Jesus also said that he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is it a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. Proving that they weren't really interested in the truth. They're interested in a trap. They're interested in trying to trap Jesus. They weren't interested in grace or mercy. They're trying to build a gotcha moment. But it's a brilliant tactic on Jesus' part. Again, Chris last week taught that in Jesus' day, there were all kinds of different camps and different subjects on how to properly interpret Sabbath restrictions. And the Pharisees were not one monolithic group with one shared view on the subject. For instance, this, the predominant school of Pharisees in this period, the Shammaiites did not allow praying for the sick on the Sabbath. The minority school, however, the Heliolites, 
who later would become the predominant after, after 870, allowed it. But what Jesus does is so smart. He answers, if you had a sheep that fell in a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And to us, that seems like an obvious point, right? But what Jesus is actually, this, this sort of ridiculous question he's asking, was actually one of the hot topics of debate within them. The Essenes would have forbidden even rescuing an animal on the Sabbath. But many Pharisees and most other Jewish interpreters would have agreed with Jesus. Pits were sometimes dug to capture predators such as wolves, but livestock could sometimes fall into them. This is a common, I mean, he's, he's appealing to, to the debate of the day, in which most people would have agreed with him. And Jesus completes that logic. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. It's so brilliant. He basically says, this stuff that you debate about, come on. The Sabbath was given to you for your good. And you've turned it into this. That Jesus once again embodies Sabbath and he does good on the Sabbath. He said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored just like the other one. Then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. Going back just for a second, in the Mark account, there's a phrase that I think really captures God's heart in this. When the Pharisees won't answer Jesus' question about a day for good or evil, to kill or to give life, Mark reports that before the Jesus heals the man, he says this, it looked, he looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Yet Jesus, Jesus is angry. These so-called religious leaders have totally missed the point. They've turned this beautiful thing into something horrible, as Israel had done so many times before. But it's not just anger, is it? He was also deeply saddened by their hard hearts, their hearts, their blindness, that was not only destroying them and destroying others, it was keeping them from experiencing the Sabbath experience of who God really is. We humans tend to take God's good gifts, make them into legalistic practices that we can kind of turn into these I gotcha moments for others and even for ourselves. I think living Sabbathly takes discipline, a spiritual discipline of reorienting our patterns and our lives in a way that fundamentally teaches us to live in God's I've got you moments. Not I gotcha. It's God saying, I've got you. Trust me. Worship me and care for others with me. Sabbath is about trusting that God's got us. It's interesting. In Matthew's account, the story of Jesus rebuking the teachers for laying down a system of laws that virtually no one could keep. And directly before that, in Matthew 11, he speaks these words. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. What a different picture of Sabbath. The religious leaders were holding themselves and others too. What a different picture of work, of life. It's an invitation that the creator has been making over and over and over throughout our history. If you'll come to me, if you'll keep my commandments, if you allow me to teach you and shape you and shape your life, you will experience Sabbath rest. Because my heart is gentle. I think it's so interesting that God says his heart is humble. How can the creator of the universe have a humble heart? He says, my yoke 
It isn't the heavy yoke of legalism. It's light. That's God's invitation to us. We have to say yes to it. We have to turn and say no to the ways of this world with all of its anxieties, and that is so hard. But it begins with Sabbath. Jesus began his earthly ministry, his teaching ministry, his ministry of healing on Sabbath by observing the Sabbath as he had his whole life. Throughout the stories, we see him continuing to observe the Sabbath. At the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Sabbath is once again central to the stories. As you read, the religious leaders plot to kill Jesus, right? And they work through the system enough that eventually Jesus is captured, Jesus is arrested, Jesus is tried, Jesus is condemned to die by the very people who claim to be followers of Yahweh. Quick question, what, what week of the year in the Jewish calendar was it when Jesus was arrested? Anybody know? Passover, right? You, you know that. You know that. It was Passover week. The week where all of Israel looked back and commemorated the story of God's releasing them from slavery, of providing manna for them in the desert. It was one of the most significant times in the Jewish calendar of the year. And on what day of the week was Jesus killed? Friday, Good Friday, right? The sixth day. The day. This is becoming a pattern. The sixth day, the day of preparation. The day when the people are supposed to get everything ready for Sabbath. The next day. And Jesus' body was set to rest moments before Sabbath began. He was buried, laid to rest as the Sabbath began. Jesus' Passover Sabbath was rest spent in a tomb where Jesus lay there dead. But on the third day at break of dawn, let there be light. Christ arose, conquering the power of death and also the power of sin. The third day was also the eighth day, the first day of creation. Let there be light. He was starting something new, a new reclamation project. Right now, that is still Jesus' invitation to us, to you, to say yes to Jesus as Savior, acknowledging that we have all sinned and can't save ourselves but also saying yes to Jesus as Lord of our lives, Lord of our priorities, Lord of our pursuits, Lord of our calendars, Lord of when we work and when we rest, what we do on those Sabbath days. Will you say yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life? For some of us, I think that might be the very first time. And for some, it's saying yes again. For me, it is a regular pattern of reorienting and realizing I've taken back the throne of my life. I want to pray a prayer. And for those of you here, it's in your, your bulletin, in your notes page online. You can download the notes page as well. We'll have it on the screen. You'll recognize it as a prayer that is similar to a prayer that we pray every month on communion Sundays. It's a prayer of acknowledgement of who we are and our need and a prayer of asking God to realign us. We're not going to read it together out loud. I'll pray it over you. But if you're praying this prayer for the first time, I would invite you to take this, whether it's right in this moment or as you take it some other moment and say, God, this is, this is my heart. This is my desire to realign my heart and my life with your heart and your desire. They aren't magical words, but there is a heart that wants to submit and align with the Creator's heart. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of my heart. 
by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that I may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. I confess that I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what I've done and what I've left undone, I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Forgive me, renew me, and lead me. That I may delight in your will and walk in your way to the glory of your holy name. Amen. It's a prayer, like I said, that we once a month come together for communion. We pray like those 12 loaves that are put out regularly to reaffirm our covenant and God's covenant to us. We invite you to come be a part of that covenant as a community, as we together ask God to continue to align our hearts. If you've prayed this prayer for the first time today, we'd love to help you. We'd love to know about it. If you go to emmanuel.church slash I said yes, there's ways that you can reach out to us and let us know so that we can help resource you.